Well, my daughter learned an important lesson this morning that we do not put Chuck E. Cheese tokens in the offering plate. <laughs> oh, I have to say that because I'm smiling. And All right, Luke chapter 18. If you turn over to Luke chapter 18 with me. Luke chapter 18. We're going to be setting the first 14 verses of this chapter together this morning. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. Now, he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God... Bring about justice for his elect to cry to him day and night. And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the ongoing opportunity we have to meet in this place at least two times a week for the purpose of worshiping You and listening to Your Word and studying it together. What a marvelous privilege this is. And we thank You for the freedoms that have been granted us here in the United States. And being Veterans Day, we thank You for all those who have served in our armed forces and ask Your blessings on them and their families. Lord, thank You for the way in which Your Word is so instructive. It exposes our hearts for what they really are. And we ask that today You would help us to see ourselves as we really are. And perhaps if there are any of us here that do not know You, that You would grant them eyes to see the glories of Jesus. That You would draw them unto Yourself. That You would change their hearts and their minds and their wills. That You would 
Grant them saving faith this day. And Lord, we know that salvation from start to finish is Your work. And it is something that You will be praised for not only here and now, but throughout all eternity. We thank You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the Gospel? At its heart, the Gospel is a rightful understanding of who God is and what He's done as our Creator, as our Sustainer, as our Redeemer. Saving faith, being saved, involves a knowledge component in which an individual rightly understands who God is as God really is. In contrast, often to the idols that we would like to erect in, in the place of the one and only true God. To be saved, a man has to understand his place before a holy God. And in light of understanding who God is, see himself as a sinner. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that a saved individual must recognize that Christ died according to the Scriptures and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. A rightful understanding of who God is, a rightful understanding of who we are, a rightful understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done in His death and in His resurrection. So to be saved, a man must know and understand the good news, the Gospel, And yet, the Scriptures are clear in explaining that knowledge alone is not enough. Knowledge is necessary for salvation, but knowledge alone is not sufficient for salvation. It has been said that there are many who miss heaven by 18 inches, the distance between their head to their heart. Evangelism, you see, involves more than just a transfer of information. Certainly, information is being Transferred, truths are being proclaimed, but it doesn't end there. When the gospel is proclaimed, inherent to evangelism, inherent to gospel proclamation, is an invitation for men to respond. The gospel doesn't allow you to merely sit on the sidelines just assessing the state of the game. It doesn't allow you to just sit there and amass information. It calls for men to take action. And the Scriptures are clear that there is no place of neutrality. That is a fictitious belief. You're either with the Lord or you're against Him. Jesus said, you're either with Me, gathering, or you're against Me, scattering. The Gospel is a call to sinful, wicked, rebellious men that they might return home and serve the High King of Heaven who created them and then to continue in their endeavor to live for His glory, which is the very reason for which they were made. Rather than to continue to be enslaved by the whims of a deceptive, wicked usurper whose doom we know is ultimately sealed. You see, those who formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the devil's whims, being enslaved to their lusts, and by nature children of wrath, even dead in their sins, are then by the glorious work of God in the Gospel made alive together with Christ. They're transferred. A person who becomes a Christian is transferred from a place of condemnation and judgment to a place of acceptance with God. And this is all done by God's marvelous grace and His grace alone. So, a real change happens in the individual. Yes, their mind is transformed by intellectual truths and facts, but the individual's heart is granted new affections. He doesn't think about Jesus 
the same way anymore. And his will is given new desires. He lives differently because he has different desires than he once had. He has different loves than he once had. So in light of this truth, the gospel, whenever we think about the gospel, we must not just pare it down to just a couple of truth statements. It's important. There is an intellectual component to the gospel. There's something that you must know. You can't be saved and be ignorant of Jesus, for example. You must know who God is. You must know who His Son is. You must understand the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing about salvation. These are all necessary to salvation. But salvation calls people to response. Which necessarily brings us to a question of how should we go about inviting people to respond to the gospel? It's an important question. If, if it involves, if evangelism is more than just, here's the facts, see you later, then what is that? How does the gospel, how does evangelism operate? What do we do when we get to the, and now what, part of that gospel presentation? What does it look like? How do we invite people to respond to the gospel? There's many forms of invitation that have arisen over the years. And I believe that many of these might have arisen from good intentions, but which nevertheless need to be evaluated to ensure that they are inherently biblical. For those who have been in Christian evangelical circles for any length of time, I'm sure you're familiar with the sinner's prayer. For over a hundred years, it has become a popular device and formula to use in evangelistic endeavors. It supposedly aids in the conversion of sinners to Christianity. There are many varieties of the sinner's prayer. I and mean, if you Google the sinner's prayer, you're going to find all kinds of varieties. Is that What are the words in the sinner's prayer? So it's not necessarily one thing, but there's a method to it. And maybe I'll just provide you with one as an example. It might go like this. Dear Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I confess that I am a sinner and in need of salvation. Please forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross and rose from the dead. I ask you right now to come into my heart and be my Savior. Amen. Now, I can't tell you how many times I've heard some rendition of the sinner's prayer over my life. Um, through, again, I, I, I want to be very charitable here, through very well-meaning, I think, Individuals who are genuinely attempting to bring people to a point of decision regarding Jesus. I myself was taught to do this even when I was in high school going into college. And when I was in college, I was helping with some youth ministry opportunities and got to do some counseling like after conferences happened. And so they did some training and all those trainings always led us to now you need to lead the individual who's come to talk about Jesus in the sinner's Prayer. I've heard it at the end of revivals, conferences, retreats, Sunday morning worship services. It's often used in connection with altar calls. Sometimes it's spoken out to an entire group and everyone is encouraged to just say those words after that person, regardless of whether or not they've walked down an aisle or anything else for that matter. Typically, the prayer is said in broken phrases so that the one becoming a Christian can repeat each portion precisely. It's interesting to note, though, that for around 1,700 years, there's no re- record of such a prayer being used in evangelism. It's a much more recent phenomenon. 
So what has led to the use of it in evangelism? I've got at least three reasons. You might add some of your own thoughts to these as well. First of all, I think it's perhaps an effort to simplify the gospel message. I think that's part of it. The, the gospel is simple, and yet it's deep. It's elegant. It's incredible. And we can find ourselves sometimes in the midst of deep theological thought and discussion, and it might give the indication to people from the outside looking in that, what on earth is this? I'm completely lost. Everything you said went right over my head. And so there's the potential that people might think that the gospel is confusing. So I believe that it's potential that this arose out of a desire to try to simplify the steps to conversion. Helping someone repeat after me kind of has a sort of closing that removes a lot of stress from the situation. It removes the person from stumbling about trying to articulate words. Especially if those words that are mentioned aren't even orthodox. I think it can come out of that kind of consideration. A second thing that might have led to its rise is a desire to ensure that people understand the personal nature of the gospel. I think there are people who have gone through many years in churches who have felt that they're okay with God because their parents are Christians or their brothers or sisters or they've got relatives or they're good friends with a Christian. And so therefore, isn't that good enough? Or perhaps they've attended to listening to lots of sermons or they've read their Bible quite periodically, and they believe that everything's fine because of that reason. I believe that perhaps the sinner's prayer arose out of a desire to tell people, you must personally respond. You cannot just sit there and listen to these truths and walk out and think that everything's okay. You must respond to Jesus. A third thing that might have caused the rise of the sinner's prayer is an outworking of the desire of well-meaning Christians to seal the deal. You know, if you're going about selling products and you tell someone at the door all about the wonders of the vacuum you have to sell, it's really not all going to do you very good until the person goes, yes, I'll take the vacuum, right? I mean, that's what we want, the actual sale. I mean, they might enjoy the vacuum. Oh, wow, an incredible vacuum. That's a wonderful piece of equipment. But if they say no, ultimately, to the sale of the vacuum, that salesman is not going to be in business for very long. There's a desire to close the sale. There's a desire to seal the deal, to put it roughly. In other words, this technique offers a quick yes or no to the encounter. And how does this figure into today's context? Well, often we want to see numbers, right? We live in a pragmatic age that wants to see what were the results. And so when people come out of a revival or a conference, we want to know how many decisions for Christ were there. How many people prayed the prayer? It allows us to quantify what we think to be spiritual success and endeavor. It becomes a handy tool. Well, how many people did you get to say those words after you? How many people raised their hands? How many people walked an aisle? I appreciate the desire to not complicate the simple yet deep message of the gospel. I also wholeheartedly believe that each person is responsible before God regarding what they do with Jesus. And I also agree that we should communicate a sense of urgency with the gospel. We shouldn't leave people going, well, there it is, you know, take it or leave it, do what you want, be on your way. We don't want to leave them with that 
sense at all. There should be a sense of urgency in us as we talk to people about Jesus. Because right now, without Christ, they are on the brink of facing a Christless eternity. Which, as we all know, the Scripture are very clear about, means that the judgment that rightly should fall on your head does. And you spend eternity in hell. There should be a sense of urgency about us. If there's no urgency, people will wonder, well, do you actually believe what you say you believe? I mean, you really think I'm going to hell without Christ. Shouldn't that change the way you relate to me? So there should be a sense of urgency about how we approach the gospel. We should desire to, to, to make as simple as possible an explanation of what it means to be a Christian. And we should call every person to personal accountability before God. These are all wonderful desires. But having said all of those things, we must be aware of engaging in any practice that places men's techniques in the place of God's ways. We must beware of substituting our techniques for the ways in which God works. We must not act in ways that short-circuit the genuine gospel. And there is a genuine danger of leading lost people to a false assurance and to a false confidence regarding the state of their souls, I think particularly with repeat-after-me sorts of prayers. Now, this is not to say that there are no examples of the sorts of things people should say in prayer in the Scriptures. For example, the Psalms are prominent in this regard, full of instruction for us. How fantastic it is of God that He gave us inerrant instruction, perfect, truthful instruction in how we ought to relate to Him. Isn't that beautiful? God tells us, He instructs us on how we ought to relate to Him. To him, and the Psalms are just full of that instruction. We can be thankful for this. We can learn from this. We must not forget that Jesus Himself provided us with the model prayer to guide and direct our communication with our Heavenly Father. And then we have Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, in which we were provided an extensive look into Jesus' own prayer life. Beautiful, amazing. We thank the Lord for this. One other notable example is found here in Luke 18. One of the parables that Jesus shares. Some claim, who argue for using the sinner's prayer in evangelism, that this passage is proof positive that it ought to be done. But I want to be clear from the outset, before I go into a little bit more of this, as to what's going on here in Luke 18. First of all, let me indicate what it's not doing. Luke 18 is not part of a gospel presentation which includes instructions on how we should instruct someone else to pray in response to God. No evangelism is even in view in this text. Instead, we have a tax collector whose entire demeanor and activity manifests that there's an inward heart change already present. And from a humbled and broken spirit, he cries out to God and cries out, Mercy me! Be merciful to me! The sinner. This is certainly the sinner's prayer. But it stems unrehearsed and unprompted by anyone else. Note, the Pharisee is not sitting there. Now repeat after me, tax collector. As we'll see in a moment, the Pharisee is in a completely different place altogether. This is unrehearsed. It's unprompted by men. It's the cry of a soul that's been touched by God. And certainly we can learn from this man's example. 
For Jesus tells us that the tax collector went away justified, while the Pharisee did not. But the point of Jesus' parable is not to provide us with an evangelistic technique, but a picture of the sort of outward effect that happens when the Holy Spirit changes someone inwardly. When the heart is changed, it shows up on a person's lips. Now, you may argue that given some of these exemplary prayers given in the Bible, and given the fact that the Bible doesn't prohibit the use of the sinner's prayer in gospel presentations, why not use it? And that's the other way you can approach something. You can say, well, the Bible doesn't ever say to do it. But someone could retort, well, the Bible doesn't say not to do it. So why not use it? In other words, just because there isn't a command to evangelize in this fashion doesn't preclude it from being added, does it? Well, that question then asks whether or not the sinner's prayer is a help or a hindrance to the gospel. For if there are advantages to it being used, then why not make use of it? Unless it actually erects obstacles or has unintended side effects or consequences which might caution us away from the practice. One line of response to this is to ask what the biblical call for action is. In other words, look at evangelistic opportunities presented from Jesus, Paul, Peter. Look at them in the New Testament and see how did they close their gospel proclamation? What sorts of things did they do? You will not find them saying, repeat this prayer after me. It's not there. What do you find? You find a consistent refrain of two words. Repent and belief. Repent and belief. And I believe the biggest problem with concluding an evangelistic opportunity with, will you pray this after me, is the potential misleading that ultimately Christianity is found in mouthing the right words. The entire conception that our goal in sharing the gospel is to get someone to repeat a prayer after us is a misguided at best endeavor and potentially damning endeavor at worst. If our question to people is, how many people prayed the prayer? If that's the question as it relates to evangelism, we have a misguided discussion going on, a misfocus going on. So you've heard me share before, my brother Adam, while he was doing mission work in Spain, engaged with a Muslim imam. My brother had only been there for a day or two, hadn't been given much training, and this imam came up to him and said something in Arabic, and then extended his hand to my brother, at which point my brother realized that he wanted him to repeat after him. So my brother repeated what he said. The imam said it again, to which my brother repeated it. And then he said it a third time. My brother repeated it again, and the imam rose his hands and walked away. My brother did not know what just happened. He talked with one of the missionaries. He said, oh, you just became a Muslim. (laughs) And we chuckle about that, right? But I wonder how many of us have approached the gospel that way. How many of us have said, well, did you say these words after me? And the person walks away just like my brother. Completely clueless as to what happened. I can remember not long ago driving down the road not far from here, encountering a billboard. Again, I'm sure with good intentions. Please hear me here. My point is not to land blast anyone who's ever done this. I've used it myself. It's to examine, is this a good way of ending gospel proclamations? 
I saw this billboard, and it said at the top, Want to become a Christian? Pray this. And all I could think of is, not necessarily even the content of the prayer that was pictured there on the billboard, but the idea that praying these words would somehow be the effectual cause of someone's salvation. Did you say the magical words? Did you repeat after me? Did you say the right words? I mean, would we consider a man ready to pilot an aircraft who knew nothing about planes, but he had repeated something after someone else? Here's the procedures. Repeat after me. Okay, I will repeat after you. Okay, now you're ready to get into the cockpit and start flying. We say, no way. How about a dentist or a doctor? Would we like that to be their training? Is that what makes a dentist or doctor is that they've repeated some words after someone else? A man is saved by repenting from his sin and trusting in Jesus Christ. Now note this. Please don't miss this. I am not saying that prayer does not figure into the relationship that someone has with God. Someone who has repented from their sin and trusted in Christ, prayer will be an expression of an individual who repents and believes. But prayer in its outward form can arise from people who are completely lost. There are people that believe all sorts of false things about God who engage in prayer every day. They're completely misled. There's Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, there's Muslims. They pray religiously. Just because you recite words from your mouth doesn't mean that you're actually saved. And there's great potential in such cases that someone is falsely converted and now their state is worse than at first because now they think they're saved when they're not. That's the danger. That's the hindrance here. And in light of the present amount of nominal Christianity, people who call themselves Christians when in reality they're not, this becomes all the more pressing for us today. A recent Barna study found that four out of five Americans identified themselves as Christians. 80% of Americans identify themselves as Christians. Meanwhile, in that same group of self-proclaimed Christians, less than half of them was even involved in a church on a regular basis. Less than half of them believe that the Bible is accurate. And the overwhelming majority of them don't have a biblical view of the world around them. You ask them specific questions about theology and the world around them, they completely botch them. They know nothing about God and what God desires from the world that he's made. There is a rampant, easy believism that marks cultural Christianity in our context and in many other parts of the world for that matter, which should provide us with a caution as we proclaim the good news of God's love. You see, we need to be evangelistically zealous and biblically clear at the same time. We need to make sure that our methodology matches what we believe. That we're not engaging in tactics just out of a desire to try to seal the deal. What deal are you sealing? That's the question. Are you the seal on someone's faith and relationship with God or is the Holy Spirit? We don't want to encourage a person to have faith in a prayer. We want them to have faith in Jesus. The Scriptures themselves warn that you can rightly recognize and confess that Jesus is Lord and yet not be saved. Matthew 7. 
Then he said to me, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons, perform miracles, all the rest? Jesus says, depart from me, for I never knew you. You see, when it comes to matters of assurance, what is often the case today, watch how this works its way out, is that people have been deeply affected by the sinner's prayer tactic of evangelism and are instructed in times of doubt to do what? Go back to the moment where they prayed the prayer. Did you pray the prayer? Did you write down the date in which you prayed the prayer? That's where you go for assurance. That's not the way the Bible describes assurance. Natural and appropriate, of course, that such repentance and belief will be subsequently expressed by praying. But the very real danger of imposing the sinner's prayer methodology is that the prayer itself might be mistaken for repentance and belief. You see, the question there that's being asked is, did you pray the prayer? When the real question should be asked, have you repented and had you believed? Not did you pray a prayer, but have you repented and have you believed? And does your life right now manifest that you live a life of repentance and a life of faith? You see, the problem is that many have reduced the gospel to the sinner's prayer in such a way that they look to it as the beginning of repentance and belief. So if you've done that, then then repentance and belief are going to follow. But really, they've reversed the order. Repentance and belief will give fruit of prayer like the one that this tax collector made. Now, the practice of putting words in the mouths of sinners in the form of prayer implying, sometimes unintentionally, that the saying of those words assures salvation, I think turns out to be quite dangerous. Why not instead just call for response for, for a repentance from sin and faith in Christ? And then explaining what is repentance, what is faith? And then leave the actual prayers to the person in their relationship with the Lord. This has kind of achieved some somewhat atten- some, some amount of attention this last year. Some of you might have read something by David Platt. David Platt was in Austin at a conference, and in a sermon that he preached, he explained that many people miss what Christianity is because we have sold them a superstitious prayer that saves them. Should it not concern us, he he continued, that the Bible does not offer this method of gospel preaching. It runs the risk of ruining many souls. It is a dangerous thing to lead people to believe that they are Christians when they have not responded biblically to the gospel. Instead of making disciples, we just want to get people to pray the prayer. Instead, let us give them the fullness of the gospel. Let us speak of how great our God is, that He is indeed a loving Father who offers us salvation in His Son, Jesus Christ. But He's also a wrathful judge who is right to pour out His wrath upon us should we not repent and believe in Jesus. Now, interestingly enough, the aftermath of that conference meant that at this year's Southern Baptist Convention meeting, this discussion came to the floor. There was a discussion regarding the sinner's prayer and whether or not this should be used in Southern Baptist churches. David Platt was present. He didn't agree with the first rendition of that document. But in the end, he voted for it. And he said this in Christianity Today. It was encouraging to see pastors and leaders together say that we need to be wise in the way we lead people to Christ. But such wisdom doesn't necessarily warrant that everyone must throw out a sinner's prayer altogether. Interesting here. He's saying that it doesn't mean that there couldn't be a place in which this might be useful. With that in mind, 
I want to just note real quickly that there's a whole lot of men that I completely respect that are much more godly than I and have used the sinner's prayer in their ministries. It's not just the Charles Finney's of evangelicalism whose tactics were obviously manipulative, if you know anything about Finney. Obvious manipulation going on there in trying to convert sinners. But there's some really godly men who have appealed to the practice. John Bunyan, in The Pilgrim's Progress, has faithful tell hopeful what to say to God. Because here's something got to pray. Now what he ends up listing there is really fantastic. <laughs> the theology is much more deep than often what we find with just accept Jesus into your heart. Um, but Meanwhile, he did use this. Charles Spurgeon, at the conclusion of his sermon, A Free Grace Promise, said the following, Before you leave this place, breathe an earnest prayer to God, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, I need to be saved. Save me. I will call upon your name. Join with me in prayer at this moment. I entreat you. Join with me while I put words into your mouths and speak them on your behalf. Lord, I am guilty. I deserve your wrath. Lord, I cannot save myself. I cast myself wholly upon you. Oh, Lord, I trust the blood and righteousness of your dear Son, so I trust your mercy, your love, and your power as they are revealed in him. I dare to lay hold upon this word of yours, that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Lord, save me tonight for Jesus' sake. Amen. So I share this to say that my point is not to condemn anyone who's made use of it, although I'm condemning myself as well. But I do think there has to be a whole lot of discernment as to how you might go about anything of this nature. And so, in general, my rule of thumb is, why not just preach repentance from sin and faith toward Christ? And then leave the praying to that person's soul and the Lord. George Whitfield wrote a hymn called The Sinner's Prayer, in which he put into words the heartfelt sentiment of a sinful soul before God. He said this, God of my salvation, hear and help me to believe. Simply would I now draw near thy blessings to receive. Full of guilt, alas, I am, but to thy wounds for refuge flee. Friend of sinners, spotless lamb, thy blood was shed for me. Now, not appropriate this morning for me to entitle my sermon The Sinner's Prayer and consider Luke 18 because we learn a couple lessons about prayer in this text. There's two parables Side by side, both teaching us about prayer. The first calls us to consider being persistent in prayer and what God's expectation is regarding that. The second one speaks to the heart behind prayer and how God receives prayer. With both of these parables, we are provided with keys as to how to understand them before the parable is even shared. In verse 1, Jesus we're told this, that he was telling them a parable to show them at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. So what's the purpose of that parable? Already told to us that they at all times ought to pray and not lose heart. And then before the second parable in verse 9, he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So I want to just consider these two thoughts. First of all, the heart of accepted prayer, and then secondly, we'll talk about the motivation of persistent prayer. The heart of accepted prayer. And first, we have to start with a negative example that Jesus puts before us, the arrogant Pharisee's heart. I want to start with the second parable, and then we'll work back to the first. We start with this arrogant Pharisee. Now, remember, we're all primed for what's about to come. We're used to Jesus having some very negative things to say about the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders, the scribes, all the rest. 
Being pharisaical in our culture, you say someone's pharisaical, instantly, do positive or negative things go off in your mind? Negative for all of us, right? But in that culture, that wouldn't have been the case. This would have been a shocking parable that Jesus is teaching. It would be something that can do if someone said, wow, um, you know, bring your rather pastoral. Now, we wouldn't normally take that negatively today, would we? Unless we think negatively of pastors, in which case I don't want to know. Um, but, but in this case, we would consider Pharisaical very negative, but pastoral we wouldn't. And this Pharisee, praying in a temple, would have, I mean, that's certainly something that he would have done, and people would not even have been surprised by his open boasting, for their righteousness was proclaimed all over the place. But what a picture is given to us with this Pharisee. Can you see him? He's standing in the temple. He has his hands up. He's clearly in a visible position. His hands, his eyes are uplifted. The Pharisee then addresses God, which indicates that he's engaging in prayer. However, it becomes clear that this is not so much a prayer as it is an opportunity to boast in his own self-righteousness and look down on and belittle everyone else. Note the number of eyes in this Pharisee's prayer. He starts with God, and after that, it's all about him. I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, and even like the tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get, that I get. There you go, right? So look at all of these eyes. He's thinking and contemplating himself. He glances at God, but thinks about himself. It appears that the Pharisee is going to engage in some thanksgiving because he says, God, I thank you. But as soon as he says that, everything is about himself. And instead of talking about God's acts towards him, what is he talking about? His own acts. His own good deeds. For which the impression is given, God ought to be thankful to him for what a good and great guy he is. I wonder if you've ever found yourself doing something similar. Have you ever had a prayer request that was really an opportunity to gossip? Have you ever made a petition that was really for the purpose of complaining and grumbling? Have you ever given a praise report for the purpose of letting other people know about your good stuff? Beware of dressing up your sinful expressions as prayers. This Pharisee is acting as if he's praying, but we become real quickly acquainted with the fact that he's doing nothing of the sort. The Pharisee thanks the Lord that he is not a transgressor transgressor of the seventh and eighth commandments like so many other people, like all the lowlifes around him. He has a superiority complex going on here. And he particularly even looks down on the tax collector like this Tax collector. Can you imagine somebody praying? I mean, can you imagine Justin, you know, I'm saying, oh, Lord, thank you that I'm not like Justin, you know? Like, what? I mean, here's this guy, he's calling out someone else right there. I mean, what arrogance, what pride. He thanks the Lord that he's so great. Pride and arrogance is is just, it's oozing, oozing, oozing from every pore. Then the Pharisee explains that he has not only refrained from these sinful expressions, but he's gone above and beyond the call of duty. He's not only abstained from vices, but he's like the example of piety. His record should be commended by not only men, but who's he talking to here? God. God should commend him. Look at all the things I've done. Not only do I tithe, but I tithe on everything I get. 
He's probably one of the individuals that Jesus said, you know, you, you tithe on a mint, dill, and cumin, right, in your, in your gardens, your herb gardens. And then he says, I fast twice a week. The biblical requirement was that the whole nation would fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. There's some amount of argumentation as to how many other days might be required in the Old Testament, but certainly at least that one day in the year. Here he says, I fast two times, and not just two times a year, but two times a week. And while there's nothing wrong with those deeds, the Pharisee is wrong in how he thinks about them and what benefit he believes he's receiving by them and how they position him in reference to God and in reference to others. Notice that in this prayer, there's not one hint of petition. There's not one hint of supplication. He's not asking for anything. He's there to tell God and everyone else how great he is. Why doesn't he ask for anything? It's evident. Because he's too good to be saved. He doesn't need to be saved. Or so he thinks. He needs no salvation because look at how great I am. Look at how well put together my life is. I'm not doing those negative things that other people are doing. And look at all the great things I'm doing above and beyond all of the rest of these people. He looks down on others because he feels that his status is so high and lofty that he looks down on everyone else. And all that we end up realizing from this prayer is that prayer is a misnomer for what's going on here. He is not praying. There's nothing about this. The only thing that made me get there is he addresses God at the beginning. But everything about it is an arrogant, uncharitable, unloving self-boast. And Jesus explains that this man went away not justified. Here's the problem for self-righteous people. And by the way, we all struggle with it. Isn't it interesting? We'll always be able to search out somebody who's worse than us. That's what we're looking for. We don't want to contemplate people who are better than us. We will find somebody worse than us. Well, at least I'm not the axe murderer. You know, you could have it much worse than me. Ever been engaged in that in a, in a family dispute? What a wonderful thing to think about. You could have it much worse than me. We love to try to exalt ourselves by putting other people down. We want to find self-righteousness within ourselves. But the problem for self-righteous people is that ultimately they shouldn't want to be judged by their own record. That's the problem. You don't really want your record displayed for all to see. Do you really want to go there? Do any of us really want to go there? Oh yeah, you might find a couple of shining moments, or so you think, but it'll be messed up with all kinds of other horrible, impure motives and actions. None of us wants all of our life displayed on a billboard behind us. The self-righteous man must come to realize, as Romans 3.10 says, there is no one righteous. No, not one. Romans 3.19 and 20 tells us, by works of the law, no flesh is justified. Galatians 2.16 says the same, by works of the law, no flesh will be justified. You see, because God's standard is perfection, everyone falls short of God's glory, and so did this Pharisee. I like the way that Hendrickson comments, the Pharisee says he's not a robber, as if he were not at that very moment robbing God of the honor due him. He's not a cheat or dishonest person as if he wasn't cheating himself out of a blessing. And he's not an adulterer, well, probably not literally, but was not this proud Pharisee departing from the true God and thereby making himself guilty of the worst adultery of all? You see, this Pharisee was guilty of all those things. 
Jesus states plainly, the one exalting himself will be humbled. May we not fall victim to comparing ourselves to others, but only to God's standard. This will ensure that we don't look down on others, but remember that we're all sinners. And if we are saved, it's purely by grace through faith alone. This leaves no room for boasting. Excluded from our consideration of salvation is boasting. Let's talk about the humble tax collector's heart. I've already mentioned that people would have expected the Pharisee to be present in the temple and for him to be engaged in prayer. But now a tax collector comes into this place as well. Certainly some people there might have been wondering to themselves, what business does he have coming here? Remember, tax collectors were not only often found extorting other people and therefore swindlers and robbers, but they're also considered traitors. They worked for a foreign government. They collected taxes for Rome. They were not looked on with joy. It's like the IRS, but the IRS is collecting money for another country. And you're working for them. But what a contrast is seen between this tax collector and the Pharisee. The tax collector comes down to the temple and And you can see here, he's approaching God. He wants to come to the place where God's presence is specially manifest. But as soon as he approaches the place, he draws back. He's not found where the Pharisee is. He's withdrawn. Probably the picture here is he's in the outer court of the temple, probably in the court of the Gentiles, and probably towards the fringes of that. Why? Because as he draws near to God, he comes to realize the holiness of the supremacy, the greatness of God, and he sees his own sin and he realizes how unworthy he is. Everything about this man screams shame and guilt. He won't even lift his eyes. His eyes are down to the ground. He looks down, kind of like the Pharisee, but in his case, he's looking just at the ground because he doesn't see anyone else below him. He calls himself the sinner. Not even just a sinner, the sinner. And there he is, looking down. He's beating his chest. He's accusing himself. He's near despair. And his prayer is not high and lofty. It's simple. It's short. And it's eloquent. He begs God for pardon, for grace. And he doesn't provide any reason as to why he deserves God's favor because he knows he doesn't deserve it. And he knows he can't earn it. He doesn't list any good things he's done. He doesn't talk about any bad things that he hasn't done. He just pleads for mercy. He knows that he's in need. He's humbled and broken. You see, knowing the greatness of God's grace leads us to humility, not arrogance. Jesus was providing a corrective here for those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. But the only hope that anyone can have is found in Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust a sweeter frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. It's Jesus that allows us to come boldly to the throne of grace and find mercy. A person must throw themselves completely upon the mercy of God. And God is abundantly able to provide. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, righteous, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. 
But how is it possible that God can be faithful to take away our sin and simultaneously be righteous in doing so? First John 1 John 1.9, He's faithful and just, faithful and righteous to take away our sins when we confess our sins. Well, how is it possible for God to maintain His justice, His righteousness, and still take away our sin? Doesn't He have to judge sin? Well, absolutely He does. And that's what's so glorious about the answer that's found in the Gospel. Let's consider what the sinner actually prays. What does he say? The actual words of this tax collector that he uses in his prayer is a request that God be mercy seated to him. He asks that God be mercy seated to him. This word calls to mind the Old Testament practice in which the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies one time a year on the Day of Atonement and would sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant on the mercy seat. On that Day of Atonement, what was going on was a picture of the sins of God's people being covered over. That big billboard of all of our life being covered over. Being wiped clean. And not only that, but then the priest would come out and he'd put his hands on the head of a goat and they would send it out, the scapegoat, out from their camp, away for forever to never come back. Symbolic of the way in which God would take our sins and remove it. But don't miss this. That's not possible apart from the shedding of blood. God's justice must still be had. And the only hope this tax collector could think of was that he confessed his sin and placed himself under the mercy seat. Ask that his sin be covered over by a wrath-satisfying substitutionary sacrifice. But the question comes to our minds. Can any goat or lamb or calf actually remove our sin? No, it can't. No animal can stand in my place. But all of this was foreshadowing the coming of someone who could. Interestingly, this one who would come, the one who is speaking here in Luke 18, is the only one who could have truly prayed like the Pharisee did. I have never committed adultery. I have never swindled or robbed anyone. Jesus could have said all of those things. He also could have added to that all of his righteousness. He could have piled it all up, exalted himself, and put everyone down. But instead, this Jesus, the God-man, the perfect one, the one who fulfilled both the letter and spirit of the law perfectly, who could rightly condemn everyone around him, instead did what? Instead, he emptied himself. He humbled himself. He endured the lowest shame. He laid down his life in order to save swindlers, in order to save robbers, in order to save adulterers and thieves and every variety of sinner. The Gospel is the wonderful news that sinners are not saved by what they do. They're saved by what Jesus has done. It's found in exchanging your sin for Jesus' righteousness. Because our holy and loving God provided for the satisfaction of His own righteousness by providing a sacrifice who would be a substitute for those who call upon Him. 1 Peter 2.24 He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you are healed. Jesus says that those who humble themselves will be exalted. And that principle, guys, is seen preeminently 
in Jesus Himself. He humbled Himself. And then He rose again. He was granted the name above every other name, as Philippians 2 says. This principle undergirds the doctrine which Paul will go to great length to explain in the New Testament justification by faith alone. God shows His love and mercy to the undeserving. Praise the Lord that He does that. Otherwise, there would be no hope for me and there would be no hope for you. It's much like David's plea in Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Hear this? David's not citing what he has done. He's pleading on the, on the basis of the nature of God. God, you are a loving God. God, because of the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He goes, all that I know is I am a sinner and what I also know is that you're a compassionate, loving God. So please act with me, not in reference to my sin, but in reference to your compassion. Act toward me in reference to that. That's his plea. And that's what this text collector is doing. Please be mercy seated to me. Please cover me. Please remove my guilt and my shame. You see, this world teaches moral renovation and renewal as the way of salvation. You need to become better and stronger and more moral, more ethical. That's how you're going to be saved. Jesus taught salvation by grace alone through faith alone. And the wonderful news is that that same Jesus who declared this tax collector justified when he walked away is now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And he will make the same statement of any sinner who comes to him with that same heart. This parable tells us the heart behind prayer that is accepted by God. Secondly, this, these parables, these two parables, the first parable really is the one that's illustrating this shows us the motivation for persistent prayer. Why do we persist in prayer? Why does prayer continue? Why is prayer not just a one-time thing? Why is prayer an ongoing way of life? And for this, we are introduced to two new characters. First of all, a widow. The first parable, there's a widow. And she's a symbol of helplessness and vulnerability. Widows had... So little, little to no power to do anything about their situation, especially if their help was dependent on someone else who would only act on your behalf if you had money or power or prestige. Widow had none of those things. This is why widows are grouped with orphans in the Old Testament in reference to those whom the Lord wants, us, wants His people to show particular care. Because they're the ones that are most likely to be mistreated and abused. So some unnamed injustice is done to this woman and she brings her case to the judge who has jurisdiction over this matter. And when she doesn't get the justice that she's seeking, she resorts to the only tool that she has at her disposal. Persistence. Persistence. She doesn't have any money to put on the table. She doesn't have anybody else to, to plead her case for her. So all she had it has is persistence. And so she won't allow the subject to be dropped. She insists on the judge hearing her case and acting. Now, we're told about this unjust judge. He ruled in this area, and not only does Jesus describe him to us, but the judge himself tells us about himself. Not only is the description that Jesus gives something that's just indicative of the guy, but he seems to even glory in it as he speaks to himself and admits the very thing that Jesus says about him. This guy, we're told had no reverence for the Lord, he had no regard for the laws of God, nor did he have any any thought for the general populace. He didn't care about public opinion, 
He didn't care about the law of God. He didn't love God and he didn't love others. Sounds like a great judge, doesn't he? Interestingly enough, isn't it fascinating that we hear that and we go, how awful. But isn't it crazy today that that seems to be the description that many people want for our Supreme Court justices? Somebody who doesn't love God, who doesn't say much about God, you better not, you better be quiet. You better be quiet about God. Let's not talk much about God. And who are unbiased and neutral towards all people. In actuality, that's the worst situation you could imagine. We want men to make judgments in submission to God's word for man's good. Upholding truth and justice and demonstrating compassion and love towards men. And here's the deal. We're never going to have, apart from the Lord, someone who models that perfectly. But God upholds perfect justice and demonstrates perfect compassion simultaneously. But here he is. This guy, he's lawless. He's an unjust justice. And while judges are called to impartiality in their decisions in the Old Testament, the Old Testament repeatedly speaks to the obligation of God's people to show special concern for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. Those who are most vulnerable, those who are most disadvantaged, God is particularly concerned about how we treat them. That doesn't mean, you know, tip the scales in their favor unjustly, but that their cry should be heard. For this reason, one of the reasons why we're so incensed about the state of abortion in our country today, because those little babies, those who are the most defenseless, should be protected. We should be doing all we can to protect these little lives. And instead, we're disposing of them. Like if they were fingernails that could be just cut off and thrown away. God cares about how a government handles those who are the weakest and most disadvantaged in a society. But the one concern in this judge's mind is not love for God and is not love for others. What is it? What do you got left? Oh yeah, love for self. That's it. Yeah, love for self. He's concerned about his comfort. He finally does act, doesn't he? But we're told why. Because he's tired of this woman. It's a really interesting word here. Literally the word comes from the boxing ring. He says, I don't want to get a black eye from this woman. Which is a really funny picture. Can you imagine this little old lady who's there and here's this powerful judge and he's concerned about getting a black eye. He's concerned about being knocked out by this woman. Obviously, it's a metaphorical gesture. He wants to be done with her pestering. He doesn't want to be worn down any further and so he acts. Now quickly, let's consider the lesson. This parable strikes people as odd. Jesus connects this parable to the manner in which we like the widow, are to bring our petitions for justice before God, our Heavenly Father, who will act on our behalf, as the judge eventually did. And surely we see the comparison of ourselves to the widow, right? We are defenseless. We're in need of help. We're in the midst of difficulties. We're awaiting a final vindication, final justice. But the thing that strikes us odd here is, is God being compared with the unjust judge? Why did Jesus tell this parable? How could God be likened to this unjust judge? Well, ultimately, it's more of a contrastive picture than it is comparative. There's more of a contrast going on that Jesus wants us to see. Jesus' argument is from the lesser to greater sort. The lesser to greater sort of argument here. Because if a wicked, self-concerned judge 
who thinks nothing of God's glory or man's good, will provide help to a widow who cries out, how much more will God give justice to his elect, to his chosen ones who call out to him? That's Jesus' statement. If this unjust judge will give justice to this widow because he's just tired of her, how much more will our Heavenly Father give justice to his children? As J.C. Rao put it, Election is a truth which should call forth praise and thanksgiving from all true Christians. Except God had chosen and called them, they would never have chosen or called upon Him. Except He had chosen them out of His own good pleasure, without respect to any goodness of theirs, there would have been nothing in them to make them worthy of His choice. Without election, there would be no salvation. Here's the, here's the rub people who try to rail against election, election is one of the most beautiful doctrines because if God was looking for something good in me to save me by, He'd never find it. I would be lost eternally. There is nothing good in me. Even my righteous deeds are a filthy rag in God's sight. So God's choice of me is not because of something in me, it's because of something in Him. He is a merciful and loving Father who is calling children to Himself. What comfort there is in knowing that God has called us like this. Now, contrary to the judge considered in the parable, we know that God is compassionate and loving and merciful and just. This God who has elected His children from before the foundation of the world will certainly not let them down. There will be no letdown with God ultimately. You see, God loves His children with everlasting love. And He will see that justice is completely satisfied. There will be a perfect vindication. God hears His elect. And here's the basis for our confidence and persistence in prayer. Knowing, that, knowing God and who we are in His Son, Jesus, God won't allow those whom He sent His Son to die for to be left without aid in the midst of horrid evils. It goes like this. If God has given His own Son for us, will He not then also with Him freely give us all things? Romans 8.32 Here the argument gets reversed. Greater to lesser. If God has given us the greatest thing, His Son, then won't He certainly give us everything else? I mean, if He gave us His Son, wouldn't He certainly give us justice in its time? Have He not spared His Son? Will He not give us all lesser things too? I mean, i just be flatly honest here, right? If I gave Joel my Son for any of you, then I'll give you everything else. If I give you my son, then I'll give you everything else. Because my son's precious to me. If God gave his own son for us, don't you think you can trust him through the ebb and flow of life, the difficulties and trials that we encounter? Now, there might be some delay in the present. From our perspective, it may feel that God is needlessly delaying. God's children through the centuries have cried out for the final and ultimate salvation that is yet to come. But in such times, it's good to remember a couple of other truths simultaneously. Like 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You see, the delay that we experience right now as we await Jesus' return is a purposeful one. God is accomplishing His good purposes according to His time frame. And though the delay might feel long at times, be reminded of this, dear brother or sister in Christ. There was a time when you were lost. And aren't you glad that He was patient with you? Patient to bring you to repentance and faith in His Son? God is using this present time to bring about the salvation of a great host from every tribe, tongue, and nation. 
And so while we long for the ultimate consummation and God's glory to reign, we also must simultaneously be delighted that God in His forbearance has purposed to wait while He calls in His children. And while the delay may seem long, when the vindication comes, my friends, it will seem quite short. Think about it this way. Comparatively speaking, in light of eternity, what is a thousand years? What is two thousand years? What is three thousand years? What is that in light of eternity? Especially in light of the permanence of the coming vindication. So how do we persevere in prayer? We know the heart behind prayer, heart transformed by the Holy Spirit. How does someone persevere in prayer? Because you see, there's going to be trials in our lives that sometimes won't be answered on this side of glory. There's going to be things, wrongs and atrocities that happen that won't see perfect justice fall upon them. There will be people who are murdered who won't be just instantly given back to families. How do we persevere in prayer? We persevere in prayer by recognizing that justice will ultimately be done. We can leave room for the wrath of God because we know His justice will be perfectly fulfilled in accordance with His perfect timing. Evil may happen in the present, but this is not a limit on God's ability to bring about His good purposes and His justice ultimately. And we are glad that God was long-suffering with us while we were still dead in our sins. There are many times when God does provide His children with a present deliverance. We see God answer prayers in all kinds of ways throughout our lives. And we can thank the Lord for those answers to prayer and those wonderful deliverances from trials and difficulties that we find in this life right now. But ultimately, our great hope is in the benefits that we'll receive in eternity with our Lord. We're able to pray at all times. In other words, under all circumstances, because of the certainty that we have been given by God that He will act with justice and love in His perfect wisdom. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. 2 Corinthians 4.17 Jesus' point is not that persistence in prayer brings about God's justice, but that our knowledge that God is bringing His justice to pass ultimately causes us to persevere in prayer. The reason why we pray is because we know that God is bringing His justice to pass. In verse 8, Jesus asks a question. When the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? His question calls us all to a self-examination and to a time of personal application. We're led to pray that God give us quiet resolve to wait on Him to perform perfect justice in accordance with His timetable. But how do we do this? What motivates this patient forbearance in the present? I suggest that the answer is all answers ultimately are are found, is found in Jesus. We have to look to Him who did not lose heart while the greatest injustice in the universe was dealt to Him. The sinless Son of God died a cruel death on the cross for crimes that He never committed and wrongs that He never did. Yet, we see Jesus persevering in prayer. In the Garden of Gethsemane, He said, Not my will, but Your will be done. And from the cross, He cried, Father, forgive them, 
for they do not know what they're doing. And into your hands I commit my spirit. How did Jesus pray this way from the cross? How could He commit His spirit into the hands of His Heavenly Father? It's because He knew that His Father would see justice ultimately done. And His Father completely vindicated His Son by raising Him from the dead and giving Him the name of every name. The humble, suffering servant and Savior of sinners rose again from the dead. And if this greatest atrocity God can turn for ultimate good, then surely He'll do the same with all of our trials. If He can take the cross and make such a glorious display of His power and His wisdom and His love and His justice, then certainly He can take the trials that come into our lives and turn them for His glory. So the question is not here whether or not Jesus will return or whether justice will ultimately or finally be done. Jesus is coming back and all wrongs will be righted. The only question is whether you'll be ready when He returns. Will you cry out to Him with the prayer of a sinner who knows his own lowliness and his own unworthiness? Will you cry out to Him who offers salvation even though you deserve judgment and death? Will you repent of your sin and recognize what a mess you've made of of the life that God has given you? Will you give everything to Him? Will you take up your cross and follow Him? Will you humble yourself and allow the Lord to exalt you at the proper time? Will you plead for mercy and cling to Jesus, the One who died and rose again, that you might live? Repent and believe. If you will, that means God has given you a new heart from which I know you will cry out to Him. And you won't need me to give you a prayer to repeat. You'll have your own prayer. As each one of us sinners saved by grace has. But your security, my friends, will not be found in your prayers, but in our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how can we not pray? You have so blessed us to think that You took us unworthy, vile, and wretched sinners and could transport us into Your family, into Your kingdom. just blows us away. And we never lose the awe and the glory of that thought that You work through what seem to be the worst scenarios and bring about Your glorious purposes and our good. May we look to Jesus, who is the perfect example of everything He ever taught. And more than that, may we look to Him not just as an example, but as our Savior, the One who accomplished the righteousness as we are incapable of fulfilling. May our hope and our trust be in Him. And as a result, may we find mercy, glorious mercy, surely by Your grace in accordance with Your love. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.